If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me in them this evening to Mark chapter 2. New Testament thinking. Jesus came with doctrine. He came with authority. He came with great proofs of his identity, great proofs of his power. Perhaps we've looked at these things over these past several weeks and we've wondered, how could it be that the people did not understand? How could it be that the people sought to Jesus for all of these physical benefits but were unwilling to see the true reason for his coming. These thoughts are natural. For we who are on the outside looking in, for we who rest secure in the fullness of the revelation of our New Testament. But let's take a minute and try to gain some perspective here on these early days of Jesus' ministry. Yes, Jesus came with great power. He came with great Authority, And we see that those who saw with eyes of faith saw enough, even in this, to commit themselves wholly to the identity and to the teachings of the Son of God. But what we're going to find today is that while Jesus came in consistency with the law and the prophets, as expressed in the reality of his baptism by John the Baptist in the River Jordan, Yet we acknowledge, nevertheless, that Jesus' coming brought with it a true paradigm shift, a new way of thinking. And anytime there's a new way of thinking, many of us perhaps have even thought through this or realized this in our own lives, anytime there is a new way of thinking, there requires, in order to assimilate that new way of thinking, true humility. And so we see in our time together this very thing this evening in Mark chapter 2. You're there in Mark 2, beginning in verse 13, we read this. And he went forth again by the seaside, and all the multitude resorted unto him, and he taught them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom, and said unto him, Follow me. And he arose. And followed him. So we pick up where we left off last time in Mark chapter 2. Jesus was in Capernaum where he healed the man sick of the palsy in response to the great faith of those who were with him as well as presumably his great faith. He, excuse me. He then goes forth from Capernaum to the seaside and the Bible says that the multitudes resorted unto him and as we would expect because that's what he's there to do, Jesus taught them. Now, the Bible says that along this route that he was passing by, he sees a man named Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom. Now, Luke chapter 5, verse 29 specifies that Levi was a publican. Now, a publican was what we would understand today to be a tax collector. The term is actually quite broadly used historically as it relates to the idea of tax collecting with several different grades of men all being lauded into the idea of being a tax collector or a publican. In the same way that we might talk about someone who's in the IRS and we might uh, say they work for the IRS, although there's any number of different um, places that they might work or functions that they might serve within the system that is our tax collecting system. Now, the actual role of publican, as we understand it from Roman history, 
referred to a man who was in charge of the entire taxing of a region. And under him would be numerous men, deputies, if you will, very similar. We have a singular sheriff in Wright County, and then we have sheriff's deputies. Now, if you uh, see any of the cars driving around, you're going to see that those are cars for the sheriff. And you might call those people driving in cars various sheriffs, but they're actually deputy sheriffs under the sheriff, who is the singular man of authority in the county. Very similar idea. The publican would have under him numerous men, deputies of a sort, who were assigned various areas to accomplish the actual purpose of tax collecting. These deputies would position themselves in various places in order to levy these taxes. One of the places where they would go to position themselves to levy these taxes would be along roadways, along bridges, and that specifically so that they could levy these taxes and tariffs as people were entering a particular region or a particular city. Um, we might call them um, customs agents of a sort, right, uh, who were um, assessing these taxes as things were entering into these various regions. And in that Jesus, the Bible says, came across Levi along the way, we might actually imagine that perhaps this was Levi's charge, that he was a sort of toll worker, a tax collector examining goods that were coming and going that would be subject to various fees and duties along the way. That's speculation, but it seems as though that would explain the fact that Jesus is uh, meeting him along the way in the way that we see it described here. Now, any tax collector is going to be um, a less than popular person in society. No one enjoys paying taxes. No one enjoys having somebody stop them to pay taxes or encroach upon their own space in order that they might receive these taxes. And on top of this, in the Roman Empire, as has happened in many countries throughout time and locations throughout the world, those that collected taxes would be quite corrupt. They had the power to confiscate goods. They had the power to levy these charges, and they had the power of the government behind them in doing so. What certain among them would do is that they would charge more to the people whom they were levying these taxes upon than was actually theirs to charge. So if a man was taxed, let's say, $10 on goods, the tax collector would not charge him $10 on goods. The tax collector would charge him $12 on goods. See, and the Roman government didn't care as long as they got their $10. And then the tax collector could take those other $2 and he could pocket them. And if the person said, no, I'm not going to pay that and you can't make me because that's more than I'm supposed to, then the tax collector points to the guy with the sword and says, you're going to pay me. And so there isn't a whole lot that you could do. Now, naturally, there would be a point where someone would be so corrupt that it would be obvious, but as long as they were just nickel and diming people along the way, it was not that big of a deal, and publicans could become actually quite wealthy in this way, as is often the case among corrupt officials within government systems. And so we have this system where Levi is a publican. He is a tax collector. And we don't know what kind of a tax collector he was. We don't know if he was particularly uh, corrupt in any way, shape, or form. But there was something else that did not work in Levi's favor in this particular context. And that was that Roman, the Roman publican would often hire natives of the areas that they occupied in order to do the nitty-gritty work of tax collection. In other words, a Roman publican would hire Israeli or Jew, uh, Jews, Israeli 
tax collectors under publicans in order to kind of actually assess these individual taxes. This meant that these deputy publicans would be fellow Jews collecting taxes for an occupying power. That made them very unpopular people among their own people. That made them traitors to their own nation. Enforcing an unjust taxation of an impressive occupational government who denied their sovereignty as a nation. And so to the devout in Israel, publicans were seen as direct sinners against God, against their people, and against their nation. Making them, in effect, social and religious outcasts of their day, of their society. At the least, among the devout. They were seen as corrupt, as traitors to the national identity of the nation. So Jesus walks by this man, Levi, the son of Alphaeus. According to Matthew 9.9, this man was also called Matthew and is, in fact, the man who wrote the gospel of Matthew. Jesus looks at Levi and he says, follow me. And just as we've already explored with Simon and with Andrew and with James and with John, Levi leaves all, he arises, and he follows Jesus. We continue, verses 15 and 16. And it came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in his house, that would be in Levi's house, many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many. And they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto him, unto his disciples, excuse me, how is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? So Jesus, after calling Levi to follow him, ends up at Levi's house for a meal. And the Bible tells us that these publicans and sinners sat down at a meal together with Jesus. We might imagine that the people who came to eat with Jesus were uh, perhaps the acquaintances, the business partners, the um, fellow workers of Levi himself. They are called publicans and sinners. Now, the pairing of publicans and sinners together is a phrase used eight times within what we have defined uh, as the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's entirely possible that these are two classifications for two different peoples, but it seems more likely within this context in that it's always used together that it's a phrase to describe the same people. They are publicans and sinners. They are tainted people. They are publicans and tainted, publicans and sinners. Men of poor character and poor virtue who had aligned themselves with Israel's occupiers for the sake of personal material gain. They were men who were disdained as dishonest among their fellow, particularly religious, devout ones among them. But here's the thing. They were publicans and they were sinners, but they were eating with Jesus. Perhaps more specifically, they were publicans and they were sinners, but Jesus was eating with them. And this very much so frustrated the religious leaders. The Bible says that they went over to Jesus' disciples and asked them to defend his decision to fellowship with these sinners. They asked, how is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? Now, the disciples have not presumably been following Jesus for very long, at least as we trace Mark They've, we, we, I mean, he hasn't even called everyone yet, right? We're actually, until Mark chapter 3, we have not even seen him call the 12. 
He hasn't even commissioned them yet. So this is early on, as far as we know. Which means the disciples probably don't have an answer to that question. As a matter of fact, the disciples may have been just as confused. What is he doing? Eating with these publicans and these sinners. These people would not have been their people either. They were following Jesus because they knew of his authority and they understood his teaching and his works to be with power and with that authority. But perhaps they did not yet understand the change in thinking that Jesus was asking of them. The kind of thinking that would not call men to change their behavior in order to align with societal expectations, but rather call men to admit that they had a spiritual need in order that they might come to Christ to be changed. And that's the difference, Christian, between a relationship and a religion. A religion asks of you change, asks you to clean yourself up in order that you might come and be favored. A relationship calls you to the person who can change you, that being Jesus Christ. I come as I am. I won't necessarily leave the way I came, though. Well, we take note that the disciples themselves did not respond to the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees come up and ask them this question. They didn't ask it to Jesus. They asked it to the disciples. But instead, Jesus overheard their question, and he answers them himself. So we read in verse 17. When Jesus heard it, he said unto them, They that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, once again, we're given insight here into Jesus' purpose. He came with signs and wonders. He came with authority. But the signs and the wonders weren't the purpose. The authority itself wasn't the purpose. His purpose was of showing these things. His purpose of showing these things was that as he showed the people their need, as he preached this gospel, they would trust in him and they would follow him. So Jesus says to the scribes and to the Pharisees, who, que who questions why it is that he's eating with publicans and sinners, he says to them, I'm eating with them because they're the ones who are willing to come. They're the ones who are willing to eat with me. The way Jesus describes this is by using the analogy of a physician. They that are whole don't need the physician, but they that are sick. And Jesus explains this illustration by saying, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, there are several things to mention about the manner of Jesus' response here. First... We note, as those of you who are familiar with the Bible, how peculiar this illustration actually is. The implication of this statement is that he's going to the publicans and sinners because they are sick, because they are sinners. And so he is, as a physician, reaching out to them. But biblically, this would be somewhat strange to us, wouldn't it? Paul spends a great deal of time within his epistles emphasizing the reality that all men are sick, that all men are guilty before God, right? Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. Explaining in a concluding manner in Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, as we think through Paul's teaching here, Rooted, by the way, in Psalm 14, verse 3, and Psalm 53, verse 3. So this is an Old Testament concept as well as a new. We consider Jesus' analogy with a manner of curiosity. No one is whole. No one is righteous. 
So what does he mean he came not to call the righteous? Who are those? There are no righteous. No, not one. Jesus doesn't need to go to the scribes and the Pharisees or excuse me, to the publicans and sinners to find not righteous, he could just as easily go to the scribes and the Pharisees. Why would Jesus then imply that the, Republic, that the publicans, excuse me, are in fact sinners while the scribes and the Pharisees are not? And this is actually not at all what Jesus meant here. In fact, we know this from the book of Mark to this point. And we know this because where was the very first place that Jesus went to preach his message? It was not to the house of the publicans and the sinners. The very first place Jesus went was to the synagogue. It was to the house of the scribes and the Pharisees. That's the first place he went. The way we would understand this would be that Jesus was reaching out to those who know they are sick. Because those who know they are sick are those that will seek a physician. So if we understand Jesus' words properly, effectively what Jesus is saying is, the scribes and the Pharisees understand their need. Uh, excuse me. The publicans and the sinners understand their need. The scribes and the Pharisees don't. Jesus came to the scribes and the Pharisees. He said, you have a need. They say, no, we don't. So he's going to go find the people that know they're sick. See, because if I don't know I'm sick, I'm not going to go to the doctor. I'm not going to start treatments if I don't know I'm sick. If I refuse to believe I'm sick, I'm not going to go to the doctor. Even if someone comes up and tells me, if a doctor comes up and says, you, sir, are sick, I will not seek treatment if I look at him and say, no, I am not. So perhaps that doctor who comes up to me and says, you, sir, are ill, you need to be treated. And I look him in the eye and I say, no, sir, I am not. And no, I don't. Well, then the doctor looks at me and says, well, then I'll go find someone who's willing to be treated. I'll go find someone who's willing to acknowledge that they're sick so that I can actually be of usefulness to someone, of help to someone. When Jesus says that he came not to call the righteous then, he was not saying that there are those who are righteous, but rather he's saying that his message is for those who know that they are sinners or who are willing to at least know they are sinners, that those who see themselves as already righteous will not be able to benefit from his words of salvation and forgiveness. So first we learn from these words that Jesus is not stating that these publicans and sinners are somehow more uniquely in need of salvation than any other man in Israel or in the world, but only rather that these men were in a position where they knew that they were in need. And so were more receptive to what he had to offer. And so he went where the people were willing to listen. And if that was around a table of publicans and sinners, then so be it. Second, the response that Jesus gives here tells us of the character of Jesus' interactions with the publicans and sinners. Jesus was not there around the publicans and sinners to be like them, nor was he there as the religious community around him to judge them. He was not there to be like them. He was not there to judge them. He was there to reach them. And this is very important to understand. There's been a growing mischaracterization over the past 50 years or so of Jesus as a man who is comfortable at home among sinners. 
that those were his people, that he was just one of those guys, an anti-establishmentarian who hated authority and who rejected religion, and he took no issue with the way these publicans were living their lives. And this is certainly a mischaracterization, one which is by no means supported by an honest assessment of the text itself. Much to the contrary, it is apparent that Jesus went where the needs were. Jesus was there not to get away from the pompous religious leaders, but rather to go where he knew there needed to be change. He knew people needed to be forgiven. People who knew that they needed to be saved. Jesus' presence there had nothing to do with any sort of approval in the manner in which they were living their lives, but rather a reflection of his determination that he would go to where people were listening, to reach those he could with the call of the gospel. And I've always found it kind of a silly idea that people look at the fact that Jesus went to publicans and to sinners and that Jesus uh, ministered among uh, harlots and such and, and thus tried to use that to justify these sins. I mean, I could think of that in, my, in the legacy of my own ministry. Every week on Wednesdays, I go to the jail. Now, would anyone step into this church, hear that every week on Wednesdays, I go to the jail and I minister to those people and assess that I was there because I was, I was just, one of the, just one of the inmates. I was there just to be like the inmates. I was there to approve of what they were doing, and that's why I I'm among the inmates. I'm among the inmates because I approve of what they're doing, and I just want to be among my people. That's not why I'm in the jail. I'm in the jail because I spent a good number of years door knocking around Buffalo and nobody was listening. And then I went to the jail and people were listening. So I went to where people were listening because I don't want to be wasting my time. I went to where people knew they had a need because when a person has their three-car garage and their two-and-a-half kids and their, their steady job, they don't feel like they have a need. And when they're told by their, by their liturgical religious systems that as long as they show up on Christmas and Easter, they're going to be just fine before the throne, they have a hard time hearing that they have a need. But when a person has been through the depths of sorrow and suffering, and now they're sitting in a jail cell, and their minds are clear for the first time in a year and a half because they've finally lost access to mind-altering drugs for just a few minutes, then they start to realize that they have a need. And when I sit there in the jail for those two and a half hours on a Wednesday morning and talk to them, they're listening. That's what Jesus is saying here. These publicans and sinners, they knew they had a need. They were listening. That's what Jesus was looking for. One final point before we move on. Think with me about just how big of a paradigm shift Jesus' interaction with these, with these publicans and these sinners was for those in Israel. We can see all throughout Jesus' ministry, even after his eventual resurrection, the difficulty that even his closest disciples had understanding the full nature of his ministry, right? Jesus, uh, uh, he, he, he uh, raises from the dead. He teaches them for, for 47 some odd days. And at the end of that 47 some odd days, he uh, is about to ascend into heaven. And they say, now will you restore your kingdom? Right? They're still looking for that, 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 that kingdom to come. And, and, and rightfully so in a sense. But they, they well, 
It's got to be now, right? Now, I mean, now that you've died on the cross and done all those things, now it's time to restore your kingdom. Jesus says, it's not in my hands. <laughs> it's not for, not for you to know, not for me to know the time. The Father knows. And that was about 2,000 years ago. But they didn't even fully grasp it even then until the Spirit of God fell and they realized that there was something bigger happening. So this paradigm shift was not an easy one. It would only be after the indwelling of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost that we see the disciples truly begin to actually understand in an appreciable way this new paradigm, having been taught by the Spirit of God himself. To that end, while we see Jesus teaching these things and understand that on the basis of Jesus' demonstrated authority, these leaders in Israel were without excuse for their rejection of his way, let us also not fail to understand just how big of a shift Jesus was asking them to make in their thinking. And a big shift in thinking, as I said before, requires a kind of humility which would not only have been somewhat rare in Israel in that day, but is actually even somewhat rare in the Christian church throughout the ages. And that's okay. Humility and mindset shifts can happen over time but they must begin in each of us by faith. Christian, it's okay if you struggle with some of the elements of a mindset shift as it relates to the Christian life. It doesn't mean that what you're doing is right if the Bible says what you're doing is wrong. It doesn't mean that what you're doing is okay if the Bible says it's not. But it's okay to understand that change takes time. And to be patient with yourself and with others as they go through that process. But what isn't okay, if I may put it this way, is when we stop listening. Is when we say, well, because I'm a sinner, God's going to have to be okay with that. When you stop trying, when you replace a humble and a repentant heart with a heart of self-justification. And that's the contrast we see between the publican and the sinner and the scribe and the Pharisee. It's not that one was a sinner and one was not. It's not that uh, one could, could, could do it themselves and the other could not. It's that one group was still humble and the other was not. When a man, instead of admitting his own fault and acknowledging his own shortcomings, justifies his actions, either past or present, this is when... We stop being a candidate for continued growth, for continued sanctification. This is the condition of the spirit that God cannot work with because it's a state of pride, a state of self-righteousness. And as James tells us so clearly, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Christian, regardless of where you are in your Christian life, regardless of how far you come or how far you haven't come, how far you have yet to go. The operative point is that you're in a place of humility, a place of repentance, that you're listening, that you're sensitive to the Spirit and His truths, that you're positioned unto determined obedience because this is the kind of man, this is the kind of woman that God gives that grace unto. Now Mark, in his characteristic speedy fashion, then moves directly from one controversy to the next. 
We do not exactly know the timetable between these controversies. The context of which we find ourselves is a feast. A feast with Matthew, with Levi, and his publican friends. Perhaps one of the reasons why this is so scandalous as we continue in our narrative was because it was taking place during a designated time of fasting uh, for religious Jews. Uh, This may be, this may not be, but as we look in the text, notice what we read next in verses 18 through 22. And the disciples of John and the Pharisees uh, used to fast. And they come and say unto him, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast? But thy disciples fast not. And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then they shall fast in those days. No man also soweth a piece of new cloth on an old garment. Else the new piece that filled it, excuse me, filled it up, taketh away from the old. And the rent is made worse. And no man putteth new wine into old bottles, else the new wine doth burst the bottles, and the wine is spilled, and the bottles will be marred. But new wine must be put into new bottles. So the disciples of John and of the Pharisees would often fast, Mark tells us in verse 18. Uh, Perhaps at this very time, they were engaged in a time of fasting. Uh, Maybe this is during the time of Levi's feast. Maybe there were days, weeks, months between these events. We don't really know. But we are brought from one in the narrative directly to the other. We are brought from Jesus having a feast with the publicans and sinners to the disciples being asked about why it is they're not fasting. Jesus, instead of fasting, was obviously feasting with publicans and sinners. Uh, Either way, it has been noticed at this point that Jesus and his disciples were not following the traditions of the elders related to fasting. Now, we would presume that this is not uh, them ignoring the fast that would be associated with the Jewish holidays that were commanded in the law. We presume that this would be other fasts that were brought by traditions of the elders before the people of Israel. Now, Matthew 9, verse 14 tells us that it was, in fact, the disciples of John that came to Jesus and asked him this question. Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but thy disciples fast not? Now, as with the last answer, so too with this one. The objective of Jesus' answer is not so much to set some sort of new standard for living. It's not as if Jesus came to teach them, don't fast as often anymore. That wasn't the point. Fasting was not the operative point here. Jesus saw through the fact that they were asking about fasting and he got down to the very heart of the issue at hand. And the heart of the issue at hand was that there, was, there needed to be a shift in a manner of thinking, a philosophy or an outlook of relating oneself to God to try to help their minds adjust to a new paradigm. So Jesus said in verses 19 and 20, we read it already, Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then shall they fast in those days. Notice that Jesus' answer once again appeals both to his identity and his authority. He asks, Can the children of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? Jesus connects his and his disciples Actions to that of a wedding feast. That's the picture here. With him likened to the bridegroom and with the disciples likened to the children of the bridegroom. Not to the bride, but to the children of the bridegroom. 
The day of the wedding would not be a day of fasting, Jesus then shows. It would be a day of rejoicing. The account in Matthew replaces the word fast with mourn. A few weeks ago in our Sunday morning, we had a message on fasting, and we connected the idea of fasting with that of mourning. That fasting is not just an exercise of diet. Yes, there are plenty of diets today that involve the idea of fasting, but that wasn't the essence of what was being spoken of when we talk about fasting religiously. The idea of fasting religiously is to afflict one's soul. It's an exercise of religion meant to draw the heart of a man into a place of contemplation, into a place of humility, into a place of reliance upon God. But is this kind of position needful, is the question, when God is with men? When the Messiah is there, is there any occasion to afflict one's soul in mourning before God? The time of the bridegroom, the time of his presence, is not a time for mourning. You do not step into a time of mourning at a wedding. It's a time of rejoicing. The bridegroom is here. It's time for the children of the bridegroom to rejoice. Certainly, fasting is important. It's an important act of contrition. But it's not just the thing that someone does. Fasting has a reason. And if the reason does not exist, because the very Son of God is in their midst, why would they fast? Just to do it? Just for tradition? Just for habit, routine? Well, no. So they don't fast. Jesus said, however, there's coming a day when the Son of God will be taken away. The word here, not implying that he would leave, but that he would be forcibly taken away. Jesus says on that day, they certainly will fast once again. Notice the paradigm shift here, Christian. Away from just doing. Away from the what. What am I doing? And resting upon the why. Why am I doing it? It's not just about what I'm doing. It's about why. It isn't the what of Jesus eating with publicans and sinners. What is he doing? The what that he is doing is not good or bad in and of itself. The question is why? Is he eating with publicans and sinners to be like them? Is he eating with publicans and sinners to judge them? Or is he eating with publicans and sinners to reach them? The why is the operative point, is it not? The what of Jesus' disciples fasting is not the point. It's the why. Are they fasting just to fulfill their religious quota? Are they fasting just to impress people that are around them? Are they fasting just to pacify their religious leaders? Or are they fasting because they're mourning in a humble heart of contrition before their God? It's the why that mattered, not the what. Fasting is a good thing. Fasting is a right thing, but not just for its own sake. Only in its proper place, only in its proper season, for its proper reasons. And it is at this point that Jesus gives then a a set of illustrations, two illustrations that tell us exactly what he is attempting to teach here. Verses 21 and 22. He says, No man also soweth a piece of new cloth on an old garment, else the new piece that filled it up taketh away from the old, and the rent is made worse. Verse 22, 
and no man putteth new wine into old bottles. Else the new wine doth burst the bottles, and the wine is spilled, and the bottles will be marred. But the new wine must be put into new bottles. Jesus gives a twofold illustration here, and he tells us what is natural and understood. That no man sews a new piece of cloth, excuse me, uh, well, a, a, a piece of new cloth onto an old garment to patch it. The picture is of a garment that is well worn by reason of age and by reason of use. Now, if you were to go into a store today and buy certain garments, you might see on the label something akin to pre-shrunk on the label, right? And the idea there is that when certain uh, fabrics are are, are made into clothing, and you put that clothing into a washing machine, and particularly into a dryer, and you might find that those fabrics have a process of, of, of shrinking that happens, and they insist that they have pre-shrunk the fabrics for you already. The fabric, when it's washed, is going to go through a final process of shrinking before it reaches that final state. And this was the idea that Jesus was connecting to here. And obviously now we have hybrid fabrics and all these wonderful things in our day and age, but not so much the case in Jesus's day. So the scenario is that there's an old garment and that garment needs to be patched. And in order to patch the hole, a person gets a patch of new fabric and sews that patch of new fabric with good solid, um, uh, um, thread, there's the word I'm looking for, onto that garment. And what would happen in this scenario is that that new fabric would eventually do what that fabric will do, which is it will shrink. And as it does so, the new fabric is significantly stronger than the old fabric and is put together with thread that has not been worn throughout the course of time, which means that the thread and the fabric are both strong that the, of the patch and the garment itself is much weaker. And so what is going to happen when that patch shrinks? It is going to tear the old garment. It's going to make the rend worse. It's actually going to rip in a greater way. It's going to make a larger hole in that garment because you are attempting to patch something new onto something old. Jesus then gives a second parallel illustration. He says, no man puts new wine into old bottles. Now, the idea of a bottle here would not be that of a glass bottle and certainly not a plastic bottle, nowhere near, no, nowhere near any of those things just yet. Uh, the idea would be what's called a wineskin, a leather canteen that would hold the wine. Now, the fruit of the vine, when it's first harvested and pressed, becomes grape juice. In order to turn that grape juice into wine, the juice would be placed into these wineskins and they'd be allowed to sit where they would over the course of time ferment. And as they ferment, a byproduct of that fermentation process would be uh, that there would be a, a, well, it would be alcohol and there would be a, 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 a releasing of fumes that would come with that byproduct. And this was the way that, that, that this wine was made. A part of that fermentation process was a releasing of fumes so that as the wineskin was sealed, the wineskin would actually expand over time with that fermentation process. And that was fine. The wine would ferment, the skin would expand, it would eventually hit that equilibrium, and the wine being fully expanded, the skin not needing to stretch any further, could become somewhat brittle without causing any problem. So over time, it might dry out a little, it might get a little more brittle, but that's okay. It gets old with the wine, and they expand it together, so everything's good. But if one then were to take one of those old wineskins, empty out the wine, 
and then were to fill it with grape juice again and to cork that bottle, there would be a second expansion and that would rend the bottle, rend the wineskin. You could not put new wine into an old skin without destroying the skin that was attempting to contain that wine because it was already stretched and it was already old by reason of use and it would just crack and break. Now the point of both of these illustrations was the same. It doesn't work to try to combine a new thing with an old thing and expect them to work in harmony. The old piece of fabric, if you want to patch the old piece of fabric, get an old patch, an old piece of cloth to patch it. An old wineskin can only hold old wine, wine that's already been through the process. Old fabric isn't bad, it just can't handle a new patch. Old wineskins aren't bad, they just can't handle new wine. And these illustrations were intended to express this new paradigm of thinking that Jesus was introducing. The law of Moses isn't a bad thing. The traditions of the elders weren't necessarily bad either. But the gospel of the kingdom was ushering in something different, a way of thinking directly connected to the power of the spirit rather than to the power of the letter. And the power of the spirit was not going to be able to be contained in the template of the oldness of the letter. The gospel of the kingdom was not going to be contained in the structure of legal ordinances. It was not going to be able to be contained in a paradigm of what. It was going to be contained in a paradigm of why, as we've talked about it. Now, Paul spends much time in Romans chapter 6 through 8 discussing this very thing. He also devoted an entire epistle to it in the epistle of Galatians. But perhaps the best or at least most succinct discussion of the ideas of this paradigm shift and of the incapacity for the Old Testament to contain the, the paradigm shift of the new is in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 verses 16 through 23 say this. Oh, I was already there, wasn't I? Beginning in verse 13. And you, being dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink, or in respect of a holy day, or of a new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head, from which all the body, by joints and bands, having nourishment, ministered, and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ, from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not, which are to perish with the using, after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom, in will, worship, and humility, and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. 
Now, Paul's words here are not explicitly addressing only the law of Moses, but to all ordinances of a sort, be they ordinances of the law, the new moons, the Sabbaths, the holy days, uh, taste not, touch not these things, meats and drinks, or be they those of other cults, as Paul speaks to the ideas of worshiping of angels or of the denying of the flesh. That's a life of asceticism, thinking that the denial of the body will somehow directly benefit the soul. But this is the paradigm shift. A shift away from what you are doing to what has already been done for you. A shift away from what to why. And Jesus is telling the scribes and the Pharisees that they will never understand his doctrines if they attempt to fit into the old wineskins of their traditions, Jesus' new doctrines. Jesus simply cannot sow the things he is teaching of the spirit onto the old garments of the letter. What Jesus brought was new, not in any way contradictory to the law, not in any way opposed to the law, a fulfillment of the law. And if he came to fulfill the law, then what were things going to look like moving forward? It was going to look a whole lot like what and a whole lot more like why. And that's the idea. And as we close today, I want to talk about that New Testament thinking together. Let's think about the paradigm shift that Jesus brought, which he asked his disciples, and that would still be us, by the way, to follow. When we approach the idea of obedience, of living like a Christian, of being like Christ, there's an order to things which is quite essential to have in place if we are going to do things in a manner that does not become confused or out of balance, carnal, legalistic, self-righteous, or judgmental. And the Gospel of Mark truly paves the way in these first chapters for this ordered way of thinking. We don't begin with the what. As a matter of fact, that's the last question we ask. The what may inspire our question-asking process. For many people, the what does inspire the process. When they see a Christian and they say, you don't act the way I act. Why not? What is it that you are doing? What is this different manner of living that you have? But that's not where the Christian life actually begins. What Mark teaches us is that the first thing we must ask before we get to the what, or even to the why, is actually the question of who. See, Jesus came, and in Mark chapter 1, what he did is he showed authority and power. And then in Mark chapter 2, we get to controversies. And those controversies, healing the sick of the palsy, Healing on the Sabbath day, as we'll see it. These controversies that would, that, that would start to arise. Those controversies become controversies among men who have not accepted his authority. But among men who have accepted his authority, when he starts to step, step outside of the paradigm, when he's healing on the Sabbath day, as they go to eat on the Sabbath day, plucking corn on the Sabbath day, 
And then he declares, and of course, we're, we're not there yet in the text, that Jesus Christ is the Lord. The Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath day. These controversies that are now being introduced, they're founded upon this first question of who. Who is in charge? That's question number one, Christian. New Testament thinking, the first question we ask as it relates to the manner in which we live our lives is who is in charge? Who's the authority of your life, Christian? Is it you? Is it all about your perspective, your desires, your feelings, your interpretation, your understanding? Does the word of God need to make its case to you and convince you before you're willing to obey it? Do you see yourself as holding the ultimate authority over your life and your actions? Or have you come to the place where you have recognized, even if you don't necessarily understand all of the implications, that Jesus Christ is in fact the ultimate authority over your life? See, the disciples, they saw Jesus' authority. They heard him teach in the synagogues, and they said he teaches as one having authority and not as the scribes and the Pharisees. Then they saw him heal the sick and the lame, and they saw him cast out devils, and they saw a man even with leprosy walk away from Jesus clean, and they say, this man has authority. This is the who that I need to be following. And then they come to the controversial things, and that now they're being asked, why is it that your master is doing these things? And they say, I don't know. But here's what I know. I know that he has authority. I know that he has the power. I know that the Spirit of God testified at the Jordan that he is the beloved son of the Father. And I know these things. And that's step one. Apart from what you feel you should or should not be doing, have you settled in your heart who is in charge, Christian? Have you determined to follow because Jesus is the one in charge? Now, once you're in this place where you have left your nets in the uh, Simon, Andrew, James, and John vernacular, you have left your nets and your father with his servants and you have followed. You've pushed yourself away from that taxation table and you have followed. Then you're in a position to ask the next question. And the next question is why? Why do I do what I do? What is the goal that I'm attempting to accomplish in the actions I choose to do and the actions I choose not to do? What am I trying to achieve? Well, in one sense, the answer would be righteousness, right? I am trying to be righteous, except I know I'm not righteous. We've already covered that. There's none righteous, no, not one. No man is righteous. Only one man is righteous. That's the man Christ Jesus. So then what does my life look like? It doesn't look like doing specifically. It looks like resting under the one who has done. It looks like what we talked about this evening as we partook together in the Lord's table. It looks like acknowledging that Jesus' body was broken, that his blood was shed, and that his body and his blood is the finished work whereby I can be declared righteous though I am certainly not a righteous man. It looks like following. It looks like submission. It looks like obedience. 
so that as I ask the question of why, my answer is 2 Corinthians 3.5. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. As I ask the question of why, my answer is Galatians 2, verse 20. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The why is this, because Jesus is who he is, because Jesus did what he did for me, I am called to a different manner of living myself. That as he died for me, so then I die to self and live unto him. A life of service, a life of obedience, a life of faith, a life of submission. Why? Because of who Christ is, one with all power and authority who did this thing for me. And it is when I have answered these questions then that the final, the final question falls into place. What? Jesus is my authority. Jesus is worthy. Jesus has empowered me by his spirit. Now the question is, what should I do with this? How do I walk the way Jesus walked? We would not expect those publicans and sinners that Jesus ate with on that day to continue as publicans and sinners if they continued to follow Jesus. If on that day they submitted themselves to the authority of Christ, because they submitted themselves to the who, that's Jesus, they would then ask the question of why, we do what we do. What is our motivation? And that would lead them to the what. What should I do? We preached in 1 John not too long ago. 1 John 3 verse 7 says this, Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. And so we get to the what. The end of that Christian road, the end of the decisions of our Christian life, the end of every decision that we come to is that we are going to do what Christ has asked us to do. And when we do what Christ has asked us to do, then we do the right thing. But we don't just do the right thing for no reason. We don't just do it to incur the favor of our church, to incur the favor of your pastor, to incur the favor of your parents, to incur the favor of your society. You don't just do this thing because it's going to bring monetary success to you. You do this thing. The what that you do is based upon something else. It's based upon the who that has asked you to do it and the why which he's asked you to live in. And then we get to the what. We find that we are insufficient to do what Jesus has asked us to do except through the Spirit of God which he has given unto us. So we submit to that Spirit. We are led of that Spirit. And he takes the Word of God and he commends it to the hearts of God's people in clarity and in truth. And then we obey it. We obey it with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our might. And may we live in that new way of thinking which Jesus established, which he was teaching to his disciples in this day, which he was reflecting into the hearts of the Pharisees and the scribes on that day, of the publicans and sinners on that day. 
a way rooted in Christ's identity and authority as the Son of God, a way empowered by the newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter, and a way directed unto the kind of righteousness which no man can in himself achieve, but only that we might receive through the one who purchased that righteousness for us the day he died on the cross for us. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.